This is the English Heritage Podcast. Hello, and thanks for joining us for your weekly podcast into England's past. I'm Charles Rowe. Now, this week, our journey back in time begins in Spain as we look at the eventful but largely untold story of Eleanor of Castile. Born in 1241, she was raised as a Spanish princess before becoming queen consort to Edward I in England. Like many royal marriages in the past, hers was politically motivated, but against the odds, she enjoyed a devoted relationship with her husband, giving birth to at least 16 children and helping him to survive a civil war, a crusade, and accumulate a large property empire for the English crown as they travelled extensively together. Today, Eleanor's legacy can be traced across a number of English heritage sites that featured in her life, while her cultural influence in architecture, design and even gardening still survives to this day. Joining us to reveal more about this remarkable woman behind one of England's greatest medieval kings are... Hi, I'm Sarah Cockerell. Professionally, I'm a lawyer, but I'm also a freelance historian and I've written a biography of Eleanor of Castile. Welcome to the podcast. And we have another guest. Hello, I'm Nick Holder. I'm a senior properties historian at English Heritage. Uh, Sarah, can I start with you first? Let's turn the clock back to 1241 when Eleanor was born in Spain. Uh, Can you tell us who her parents were and why they were important? So her father was Ferdinand, King of Castile and Leon. And he was a great king. He later became a saint. And he was responsible for making Castile into one of the foremost countries in Europe at the time. Her mother was Ferdinand's second wife, Jeanne, the Countess of Pontieu. Pontieu is a little county just over the Channel, very close to Calais. It was therefore highly strategic, which was what made her very important. And she had been lined up to marry Henry III of England. And that match was important enough to get her taken off the market by the French crown, who had her married off to Ferdinand. That got her out of the way. So she was Franco-Spanish, really, by her parents? Yes, she was indeed. Right, that's really interesting. I can already get a sense here of this sort of political manoeuvring that's going on. And securing Eleanor's hand in marriage was going to be crucial for England to gain some kind of foothold in southern France. Am I right? Yes, that's right, because obviously we had lands in southern France and just over the border was the Kingdom of Castile. That really was the bulk of what we now think of as Spain. It had become, over recent years, the leading country in the Iberian Peninsula. It had effectively absorbed the much earlier Kingdom of Leon. There was a Kingdom of Aragon, but it was much smaller. So it had huge influence in the Iberian Peninsula and then across towards our southwestern French lands. Was it quite a a large area then? Is it mostly, would we describe it as mostly northern Spain? Yes, it was based in northern Spain. It was pushing down towards the south because, of course, nearly all of Spain had been taken over by Islamic invaders and the great mission of the Christian kingdoms which remained was to try and increase land, push southward and push the Islamic invaders off the peninsula. We've talked about how important then Castile was as a kingdom. How influential was it, though? It was certainly highly influential on 
um, the other kingdoms of the Iberian Peninsula. It was very influential in promoting the papacy's interest in crusade because they saw what was being done in Castile as a form of crusade. And it also was a mechanism, a vector for cultural influences, which it saw a lot of from Africa and elsewhere in southern Europe, which then fed through into our southern French lands and on upwards into northern Europe. So it sounds like a bit of a sort of um, a pinch point, really, between two competing cultures. Very much so. Not just two competing cultures. They had obviously a lot of Islamic influence. It was also a place where they had a very vibrant Jewish community. So they had something called convivencia, which was the three cultures living sort of in harmony. Obviously, at that time, it was... um it was the status quo, and I suppose you you just get on with it. Mm. Let's talk about Eleanor's father then. He's the king of Castile. He's involved in both domestic and international politics. Can you tell us about some of his exploits? Yes, well, he was a very active ruler. He became a saint not because he was very religious, which he was, but because he was a very famous warrior. His focus was on the Reconquista, reconquering as much of Spain as he could, During the course of his rule, he basically knocked most of the Islamic lands off and ended up with just a very small emirate of Granada clinging on at the bottom of the peninsula. He reconquered Cordoba, he reconquered Seville and a variety of other places. Mm. So he was a great warrior. He was also a great promoter of the church. He supported the mendicant orders. He supported learning. Uh, Dominicans who were very keen on learning. He supported the University of Salamanca. He was a writer. He wasn't hugely involved directly in international politics, save by example. So his example as a crusader was one which made him famed internationally. He was remarked on as a paradigm of an excellent king by English chroniclers. And he was so well thought of that he was even permitted to marry as his first wife a German princess who was a descendant of Charlemagne. And in this period, you don't really get much more proper and prestigious than that. Yes, and it's worth saying that Charlemagne is of the Holy Roman Empire. Yes. So very powerful in Europe indeed. Absolutely. Yes, because I remember seeing a map at um, Deal Castle where this was explained to me and uh, the Holy Roman Empire obviously spread over quite a large area of Europe and uh, was the... uh, dominant force, uh, certainly in in later centuries as well. So we've covered how the King of Castile was a great warrior, uh, also very educated, domestic and internationally active politically. Did Eleanor take after her father in terms of education as well? So I should be absolutely clear about this. We don't have a direct account of her education, but I think we can be as close as possible to 100% sure that she was extremely well educated because we do have a written account of how her family said princesses should be educated. And what they said was they should be educated exactly the same as princes. And we do know how her brothers were educated. And the answer to that one is phenomenally well. Her eldest brother was known as Alfonso the Wise because he was so very learned and such a promoter of education. Others of her brothers studied at the University of Paris and became authors. And then we know that Eleanor herself had a huge love of books. She had one of the only publishing houses, effectively, a scriptorium in Northern Europe. 
And we know that she read not just fiction and light reading and popular history. She read and disputed on theology. So she was highly, highly educated. Was she a linguist as well? Yes. Obviously, again, we don't know that much about what languages she spoke. She would have spoken and written Latin. She was taught how to write. She would obviously have known French. She would have known Castilian. It's likely that she knew the local dialect of her county, Pontieu. Um, Question mark whether she ever learnt English. Well, you'd think that uh, when she goes there eventually that she would uh, pick up the language. Let's bring Nick in now. Nick, how did this Spanish princess, incredibly educated, with a very strong father, come to marry an English prince? Well, I think we can safely say that it wasn't initially down to love. They didn't sort of meet in some medieval entertainment or banqueting suite. This was a a match of politics and negotiation and diplomacy. I suppose like so much of the way the aristocracies of Europe worked, marriages are important bargaining counters to achieve peace, to avert war, to solve diplomatic crises. And did she do all of those things, would you say? Well, I think the marriage worked pretty well for all concerned. We've heard about the English territories in the southwest of France, what we'd now call Bordeaux and the surrounding area. Another word is Gascony or Aquitaine. And this was an important territory. It's in the modern country of France, but historically, certainly in the 13th century, it's part of the great English empire. Now, unfortunately, by the 13th century, unfortunately for England, this great Anglo-French empire wasn't quite as large as it had once been. King John had lost quite a lot of it. So Gascony, the southwest of France, was the last big remaining chunk of England's territorial possessions. So Henry III has this important bit of France left in the English kingdom. Unfortunately, it's hard to manage. There's lots of local disputes and local tensions. Into this difficult mixture comes Alfonso as King of Castile, and he is naturally interested in this neighbouring country to the north, Gascony. So he starts to get involved in a rebellion against the English. Now, Henry III quickly realises that it's probably going to be easier to come to a diplomatic solution than launch a major and rather expensive invasion. So he quite cannily arranges a diplomatic deal where Edward, his eldest son, is going to marry Alfonso's sister. In fact, I think it's his half-sister, Eleanor. And this is quite favourable to the English. We, if you like, get a pretty good deal sorting out the diplomatic situation in Gascony. We also get a useful ally, as we've heard, an important ally, the sister of this famous crusading conquistador, And we have a useful ally just in case things turn badly in France. The same might apply to Alfonso getting an English ally. So all in all, I think Henry III comes out of it quite well with this diplomatic marriage between Edward and Eleanor. When would discussions have begun around all this? Well, the marriage is happening in 1254. The discussions are happening earlier that year as rebellion and difficult political situations are kicking off in Gascony. So it's not something that's been planned for 10 years, as sometimes aristocratic marriages can be. And did the marriage also happen in that same year, 1254? 
Edward arrives in Castile, in Burgos, in probably, I think, October 1254, and they're married soon afterwards. Edward also has the honour of being knighted, symbolically knighted, by this great crusader warrior king, Alfonso. It's all working itself out quite well at this stage, I suppose. Edward, as you say, was 15. How old was Eleanor? Well, I think, uh, Sarah, she's nearly but not quite at her 13th birthday at that point. We don't quite know her exact date of birth, do we? That's right. We don't have any real clarity on what her date of birth is. But my best deductions is that she was probably born late in November and she was probably married early in November. So she was just a few weeks shy of her 13th birthday. I want to get a sense now of how well they were received in Gascony as they were sort of ruling over that area and how well the marriage was received back in England. Is there any account of this? I can't think of a direct account of the marriage. The coronation later becomes important. But one thing we might think about is that if an English king or an English prince marries a foreign princess, that's good because it establishes alliances, you're banking sort of diplomatic chips for the future. It doesn't always go down so well back home. So in the mid-13th century, we have an English king, Henry III, but he has some pretty unpopular half-brothers. He's brought over from France, the so-called Lusignan clan. We've got this French Queen Eleanor of Provence, who has some of her family over from Savoy, the so-called Savoyard clan. So lots of commentators in that rather unfortunate English tradition are just not very keen on the influence that these foreigners have on the English crown. Mm. Commentators like the, the grumpy monk Matthew Paris is not very impressed. No, if I can just break in, the sense one gets is that there was certainly a preparedness to be hostile to the marriage within England because of the existing foreigners who were seen to be there. It's very interesting in Gascony, which had been through a very difficult political time and had suffered under the hand of Montfort, that it seems to go into really quite a peaceful phase, relatively speaking, when Edward and Eleanor are there almost as if the local population actually appreciates getting a bit of direct attention from the royal family and also seeing the direct link with Castile. Ah, very interesting. Just Mm. thinking maybe that's something to praise Edward and Eleanor at this point in the 1250s, the mid-1250s, that Simon de Montfort had actually been in charge in Gascony and his rather aggressive, confident personality (laughs) hadn't really done much good in the region. So, As Sarah says, to have someone who's interested there on the ground trying to do what's right, maybe it's quite good for the province. It's certainly good experience for Edward and Eleanor, I think. Yes. Yes. The move from the iron fist in the iron glove to the iron fist in the velvet glove. It sounds very much like the male-female combination was able to sort of placate and improve relations with the locals there. Yes. And of course, as soon as Edward and Eleanor uh, got married and moved to Gascony, they were starting their family, yes. Uh, even though they were so young. Yes, l- well, let's get into that. So they start their family in Gascony, so abroad, as it were. Yes, well, unsuccessfully. It appears that Eleanor lost a child almost full term within that first year of their marriage. And judging by the dates, she must have fallen pregnant almost on the wedding night, certainly very, very soon after the wedding. And the baby, who never had a name, is known as Anonyma, Eleanor gave gifts in memory of that child in Bordeaux Cathedral many years afterwards. So effectively, we know that they were there living as man and wife. 
and that they would have been seen as a couple starting their family while they were learning the ropes as rulers. That's something that I think um, even in our modern times we associate with, don't we, with the, the Duchess of Cambridge or the Duchess of Sussex having children. Normal people really relate to other people having families, don't they? And I think that's yes. something that appeals to the subjects, <laughs> doesn't well, it? Well, I, I always think there's actually quite an interesting parallel between this year that Edward and Eleanor spend in Gascony and both the year that the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh spent just after they were married abroad mm. with him on duty and then the year that the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge spent on Anglesey shortly after their marriage. Yes. A little bit of time in a different part of the realm to establish themselves in their marriage and establish their profile outside of the main area of rule. Yes. Quite handy also to run away slightly from your unsuccessful parents, the, the kings and queen consorts. Yes. Maybe, maybe that's part of the recipe for success as well. Yes, a bit of a factory reset on the sort of reputational side of things. <laughs> um, when do they come to England as a couple? At what age are they? So it's just that year later, more or less exactly a year after they got married, they're summoned back. In fact, Eleanor is summoned back to England. Edward is told he's supposed to go off to Ireland, but he flatly refuses. So she comes by herself to England, and Edward follows a couple of months later. So this is 1255? Yes. And are they still trying to have children at this point as well? Well, we don't know. What we know about their children is that Eleanor definitely has children from the early 1260s. And she continues to have children all the way through till 1284. So we can trace her childbearing years as being maybe sort of 32 years. But mm. those very early years after their marriage, we don't know whether, they, whether she had more unsuccessful pregnancies. It may be that for a couple of years, because she was so young, they took some steps to avoid pregnancy until she was a bit older and better able to stand the rigors of a pregnancy. But by the early 1260s, we know that she is having children, sadly, most of whom die. How many does so, she have in total? Well, again, we, because we don't have records of all the ones who die, we don't know the exact figure, at least 16, of whom you end up with only one boy, that's the future Edward II, and four girls surviving her. How does she split her time then between her private and public roles as both wife and queen and mother? It appears that there was relatively little private time. I think it's fair to say, and I think Nick will agree with me, that Henry III left quite a tangled web to straighten out and that Edward and Eleanor did things rather differently from Henry and Eleanor of Provence. So Henry III and Eleanor of Provence, Eleanor of Provence often stayed at Windsor without Henry and with her children. She was very children-focused and she maintained private time. Eleanor of Aquitaine, even, she ran a separate court, mostly away from Henry II, and she was with her children nearly all the time. Again, a lot of private time. The distinction with Eleanor of Castile is she is always with Edward. She takes her business with her. The role that she identifies with most strongly at the time seems to be her business, not with her domestic side. And that's in part because the crown is so poor, it needs to be put back on its feet. And you can tell this from a rhyme that the squires told Edward and Eleanor that people were saying about them in the streets. And it goes like this. The king would like to get our gold, the queen our manners fair to hold. So she mm. is very much queen first in 
her role as a property developer, essentially, which she's agreed with Edward. And her domestic role, important, yes, she continues to bear children. But in terms of being mother, the domestic role had to come to her. The younger children spend time at court on the major festivals. The older children, from seven upwards, spend much more time at court over the year, travel with the court. There was no money, effectively, to fund a queen as well as a dowager queen. Of course, Eleanor of Provence had her dower assignment with lots of properties. And there was then a real shortage to fund what Eleanor needed to do as queen. There was also a real shortage to fund what Edward needed to do as king. So it was important for both of them to make money. For Eleanor, it is for the family that she marries into. She Mm. effectively makes the future queens of England solvent by the work that she does. We talked just earlier about how she was very devoted to Edward, travelled around with him a lot. I understand as well, including on a crusade to the Holy Land. Isn't there an episode as well where he gets injured and she helps nurse him? Is that right? You're half right. He gets injured. There is an assassination attempt on him, which in fact does give you some evidence that he was doing something right. He had done enough to annoy the local powers that be and an assassin was sent with probably a poisoned dagger. He was very unwell. He had to have an operation to cut out the flesh where it had been poisoned. But the story that Eleanor sucked the poison from the wound and saved his life, which has been immortalised in plays, paintings, all sorts of stories over the years, is complete rubbish, I'm afraid. Ah. We want it to be true. Everybody (laughs) wants it to be true, but it's not. It's first suggested considerably after the event by a chronicler from the Iberian Peninsula who obviously wants to boost Eleanor's profile, but there is no contemporaneous account suggests she did anything other than get very upset and have to be taken from the room. It does sound very implausible that someone would even survive having sucked poison from a wound anyway. <laughs> so, you know, there's the problem that in that story anyway. So they leave the Holy Land. Where else do they travel together? Well, they travel more or less constantly throughout their marriage. I've mentioned Eleanor's business being essentially to buy and run properties. And as part of that, they travelled widely within England to see her properties and properties she was planning to buy. And if you follow Edward I's itinerary and you cross-check it with Eleanor's properties, you can see how much they do that. They travelled to Scotland when they were first married to see his sister and brother-in-law. They travelled to Wales twice to France to visit Eleanor's family and also to France for diplomatic purposes, both to see the King of France and also to conduct negotiations quite late on in Eleanor's life. They stayed in the south of France and Edward at least went over into Aragon to discuss the marriage of their daughter and a possible peace treaty. How much travelling do they do sort of throughout their lives? Is it consistent all the way through? And do they have a base in England? They don't have a single main base at all. As I said, with Eleanor's business, she needed to go and see all of the properties she was acquiring. She needed to see how they were running. Edward also, after a period where there had been civil war, needed to be seen, needed people to see him doing kingly things and being interested And so they travelled almost constantly throughout the country. And so they have no one main base. 
they have a number of Edward's quasi-military bases, you might say. So places like the Tower, Northampton Castle, the beautiful, big, aggressive castles he builds in Wales. Then they have domestic bases. Geddington, where one of the crosses is, is one of them. It's one of their favourite hunting venues. They have another favourite hunting venue at a place called Quennington. Leeds Castle, which is one of the places that Eleanor acquires. They have King's Langley. And Eleanor also has a property on the Isle of Wight they visit quite often. But then they travel to all sorts of other places as well, non-stop. Very spoilt for choice in terms of places to go and stay. Yes. And, uh, you know, acquire more property and do deals and what have you. We've talked about, obviously, her interest acquiring property. And I suspect she probably has some sort of interest in architecture as well. Does she have any other interests away from those things? Yes. I mean, we've mentioned the books. She's incredibly fond of books and reading and she's constantly commissioning books either in terms of beautifully decorated books or histories or just simple stories but her business it's not just on the money side it is a I think a passionate love for England as it develops Leeds Castle is a wonderful example. It's bought as a property investment. She restores a a shattered estate. She inherits a castle which has got a lake, makes it unbelievably beautiful and stocks it with fish. She improves the castle so that the castle appears to float in the middle of the lake. She installs probably the first bathroom with running water ever seen in England. She installs a beautiful, beautiful garden. Wow. Gardens are one of her great interests. Even if she's only staying somewhere for one night, you find that the gardens are put in order. (laughs) Um, She has lilies (laughs) planted in the garden at the Tower of London. She has pear trees. She has apple trees. She has herb gardens. There's the recreational side. She and Edward develop the Royal Muse. She gets a beautiful fountain installed there. They spend quite a lot of time developing their stables and so forth. So... She's not short of interests, Eleanor. Nick, you know a bit more about the English heritage sites which would have reflected some of these interests. Which ones were most noteworthy in her life? There's maybe not dozens of English heritage sites, but lots of English heritage castles. Orford, Framlingham in Suffolk, Dover Castle, the first bit of England that Eleanor sees probably arriving in England. English Heritage, we managed the ruins of Luggershall Castle in Wiltshire, rather attractive, and moving further north, Carlisle and Richmond as well. So this partly reflects the history of English heritage now that we manage and look after on behalf of the nation a lot of castles. But in addition to the castles we look after that are connected with Eleanor and Edward, there's a number of religious houses, monasteries, Thetford Priory in Norfolk, Hales Abbey as well, Canterbury. These are all uh, religious houses where the couple would have stayed. Remember that these monasteries, in addition to being places of professional prayer for monks and sometimes nuns, monasteries are also centres of great hospitality, not for the likes of you and me, but certainly for the likes of the king and queen. And wealthy monasteries such as Thetford and Hales would have accommodation suites, guest halls, guest wings. So just by... Eleanor did quite a lot of business with uh, the religious houses in terms of property dealings, not always entirely good-natured. And she'll obviously forever be connected with Harby as well in modern-day Nottinghamshire, where she died. But how did she die? And what were the circumstances in England at that time? 
the places that the couple visited that summer were looking back again to a tour of Eleanor's properties on the whole. They'd been away for a few years in France doing this diplomatic affair down towards Aragon. All of Eleanor's properties had been remotely managed. She needed to check what was going on. By this stage, she had been ill since about 1286. You first see the signs of medicine being bought for her. By the summer of 1290, she's dying. She'd spoken to the artist who would do the tomb, married off all her daughters and as many of her female dependents as she could. She was hoping to get her son married off to the heiress to Scotland. What was wrong with her and what she ultimately died of, we don't know. Mm. One theory is malarial illness because there's a mention of a fever with essentially a malarial pattern. Her father died of congestive heart failure. She may have been prone to that as well. We simply don't know. We do know that she was extremely unwell. They had been traveling much more slowly than they had habitually done. Again and again through their marriage, they had gone Northampton, Giddington in one day with no problems. This summer, they needed a stop in between Northampton and Geddington, which is not a long way. And it may well have been in part for this reason, as well as the waiting on the Maid of Norway, that they had Parliament at Clipstone that year. And after that had been finished, her family had come to visit her there. They were heading for Lincoln, which was a favourite place of theirs, and she was just too ill to make it. She ends up at Harby because she couldn't make the last, I think it's six miles from Harby to Lincoln. And they had to take refuge in the house of a stranger. And she never left it, or never left it alive anyway. Goodness. What happened next? Can you describe the arrangements for a funeral? Because obviously they're quite far away from the southeast and the seat of power. Well, they've got to get back to London. Edward and his now deceased Queen have to get back to London, actually more specifically to Westminster Abbey. Remember that Edward's father, Henry III, has completely revamped this great monastic church, and it's going to be the Royal Mausoleum. They're going to do an elaborate double or even triple burial. It turns into a a triple burial, and the body of Eleanor is taken to Lincoln, probably in the Blackfriars, one of the religious houses or monastery in Lincoln. The corpse is embalmed, the entrails and internal organs are removed, and they, those organs, are buried at Lincoln Cathedral. Just to recap, she's died probably on the evening of, uh, or the night of Tuesday, the 28th of November, this is 1290. So several days have passed, it's probably on the Sunday, 3rd of December, that this first of three burials takes place. The heart has been cut out and has sort of physically separated, probably placed in a jar, and so the corpse and the heart in a jar can then travel in a long funeral cortege from Lincoln all the way down to London and then on to Westminster Abbey just outside London. As we've heard, she's a well-travelled woman in life, but she's a very well-travelled woman in death. And so over the next... 20 or so days after her death, her body travels to 16 or 17 locations. And these gradually become the subject of a great sort of commemorative memorial scheme involving Eleanor Crosses, a crosses at 12 locations, but also including three tombs for her three burials and many other forms of commemoration. 
Can you describe the second stop off and, and what was buried or deposited at that point? So her main burial is at Westminster Abbey. They've now gone back to the Blackfriars in the city of London. Very important, large, wealthy religious house. This is where her heart is going to be buried. And Eleanor's heart thus rejoins her son's heart, her little son, Alphonse or Alfonso, who was going to be king of England but had already died aged 10. So there's a poignancy that Eleanor's heart rejoins that of her own son in the final stage of this triple burial. I understand from this 21-day procession that there were a number of crosses which were erected after Eleanor's death to memorialise her. Can you tell us um, roughly where they are? Edward decides, and this is this is quite an extraordinary plan, Edward decides to commemorate the places where the funeral procession stopped off. In fact, there's probably about, it slightly depends how you count, but there's about 16 stops between Harby in Nottinghamshire and Westminster Abbey in London, and 12 of these end up with these memorial crosses. He takes the idea probably from the crosses to commemorate uh, King Louis IX, the French king who dies on the Eighth Crusade. So it's not a completely original idea, but it is pretty unique in England. And the funeral crosses seem to represent the places where Eleanor's body, where the corpse rested overnight. The first of these crosses is in Lincoln. Remember, she's also got a tomb in Lincoln, Lincoln Cathedral. She has a cross there, a little fragment of it survives today. You can go and visit that in Lincoln Castle. And the crosses chart the funeral procession's journey south. We can move 25 miles further south to Grantham, and we go on to Stamford. We then arrive at Geddington, where the funeral party stopped. Remember, that's the hunting lodge where they spent happy hunting holidays while they were alive. The cross there is probably the best preserved cross and that's the one we look after and managed by English Heritage very beautiful medieval monument and the crosses then continue heading southwards through Northamptonshire Buckinghamshire arriving at Woburn in Bedfordshire Woburn Abbey St Albans in Hertfordshire and finally Waltham which we now know of course as Waltham Cross in Essex so we have the 11th and 12th crosses that's to commemorate when the funeral party arrived in London and the 11th cross is set up on Cheapside. That's the busiest street in medieval London. It's the main sort of east-west shopping street that runs across the heart of the city of London. And there's a tall, elegant and rather expensive cross there. Probably the most beautiful, the tallest, the grandest cross of all is at Charing. Now, Charing, we now know it as Charing Cross, named after, of course, the cross there. But Charing in the late 13th century is a small little hamlet or village on the outside of London, sort of in between the city of Westminster and the city of London. You've got these sort of double cities with a little gap in between, and that's Charing. The cross at Charing probably commemorates where Edward spent the night before the second and principal funeral at Westminster Abbey on the Sunday. Mm. And this is this would have been, this was the greatest of all 12 crosses. Sadly, you know, it doesn't survive today. If you want to visit a, one of these beautiful crosses today, Geddington is probably your best destination. But the Northampton Cross at Hardingston is also a very beautiful monument. What did happen to the ones that uh, didn't survive? Were they just destroyed or broken up? Or 
Well, the crosses, we have a, as you know, we have a pretty eventful Protestant revolution in the 16th century. And actually, this series of 12 crosses largely survive that Protestant revolution because they're not religious statues. The damage really seems to occur about 100 years later in the 1640s, the English or the British civil wars. Because by then, of course, these Eleanor crosses are sort of doubly dubious. They both commemorate a royal family, which wasn't particularly popular in the uh, civil war of the 1640s. And they're also, of course, tinged with traditional English medieval Catholicism, prayers for the soul, what 17th century radical Protestant would have called papish superstition. So most of the crosses get pulled down in the mid-17th century. I'm guessing that all of these would have been some undertaking to construct. Stonemasons would have been involved and it would have taken a while to do after she was eventually laid to rest in Westminster Abbey. So how long would it have taken to erect all these? This is a pretty major building project and Edward invested quite a lot of money. Admittedly, some of that money is coming from the continuing proceeds from his late wife Eleanor's estate. So there's some good, sensible accounting going on. But some of the finest masons in the land are employed. Remember, they're also having to make three separate tombs. So they've got to make 12 great stone monumental tower crosses and three great tombs for the three burial sites. So the masons and the goldsmiths are pretty busy at this time. Most of these monuments seem to go up in the first five or six years after Eleanor's death, so most of them seem to be complete by the mid-1290s, within about five years. And I think they're also a hallmark of his mourning, uh, the fact that he was obviously completely bereft. Sarah, how did ordinary people react, though? We don't know a huge amount. It's certainly not a great outpouring of grief like there was for Elizabeth of York which was a sense of mourning, which was very much like that which we all remember for Diana, Princess of Wales. But it does seem that Eleanor was mourned from what we know. Firstly, from the plans for the procession, taking her back in this open way along major routes suggests that people would want to turn out to pay their respects putting up crosses scattered across the country. You don't do that if somebody is unpopular. And a number of the places where they visit for the funeral procession are, in fact, within or very close to Eleanor's lands, where she would have been popular as somebody who ran property well, which makes people more prosperous generally. Mm. We know she wasn't unpopular with common folk because when she was alive, there are stories of ordinary ladies bringing her gifts, things like bread and fruit that they have made. And that shows she was seen as approachable and somebody who shared interests with ordinary women. We do know that thousands of prayers were said for her. We do know that donations were made by a wide variety of people, not just her family, but also people she'd worked with over the years, including her laundress, made a substantial donation in her memory. Obviously, everybody knows about Edward's mourning that he wrote during the period of time when he was asking for prayers to be said for Eleanor saying that she was somebody who he had long loved and could not cease to love now that she is dead. But there is this feeling that there was a general sense of mourning, even if people didn't take it quite to his extremes. What happens lastly in the story then? Um, Does Edward just 
carry on as a widower? No, he marries an 18-year-old girl and has some more children. Well, you've got to continue the line, I suppose. <laughs> yes, he needed his, his spares yeah. um, in case Edward II didn't work out. But yes, he, he marries the daughter of the King of France and is an extremely good husband to her, well-trained by Eleanor. The last thing, of course, we want to talk about is how Eleanor is remembered by historians today. Uh, Nick touched on the fact that, obviously, through the Reformation, the perception of her would have been different. How was she remembered during latter centuries and even today? Yes, there's been a huge sort of shifting in how Eleanor was remembered. As years went by after her death, the idea of her as a person tended to meld into other Eleanors. And so some of the hostility which was being pointed at Eleanor of Provence or Eleanor of Aquitaine came in her way too. Then it moves until the story of the poison-sucking incident and the crosses take over as the sort of motif and she's seen as this impossibly dutiful, devoted, perfect wife. And there are the pieces of art I've mentioned as well. All of that sort of spin this myth of her as a very submissive and um, polite and lovely wife. But recent years saw a lot of research into the properties, into her business interests. And I think there grew up to be something of a discomfort amongst historians with that acquisitive side. The queen would like our manners fair to hold. And that's one of the things I've grappled with in the biography that I wrote. What I hope I've done is to show her as a rounded person, a very admirable, a somewhat alpha female, who left behind her a legacy in learning, in the economy and having put, helped put the crown back on its feet, in domestic architecture and design, and even in things as day-to-day as our own gardens. I have to say, I never look at a hollyhock, which is a plant that she was reputed to have introduced into the country without thinking of Eleanor. And Nick, what's Eleanor's legacy for you? I think Eleanor lives on in our modern buildings, certainly in our 19th century Gothic architecture. There's a sort of interesting connection that there's a young architect, George Gilbert Scott, in the 1830s. He's working in Northampton, and he I'm pretty sure he saw the Hardingston Cross, one of the 12 Eleanor monuments. And in the 1830s, Scott becomes involved in this architectural movement we've come to call the Gothic Revival. And he's working on the design of a memorial cross in Oxford known as the Martyrs Memorial, which is finished in, uh, I think, the early 1840s. So he's drawing direct inspiration from the genuine Eleanor survivals, the and he's bringing that sculptural, artistic vocabulary into the 19th century Gothic revival movement. And Gilbert Scott and the Martyrs Memorial in Oxford sort of set off this chain reaction of memorials all over the country. And architects just start erecting crosses all over the country. Eventually, the, a cross comes back to Charing Cross. We've heard about how Eleanor's original medieval Charing Cross, Charing, has been taken down in the uh, 1640s, but a new Charing Cross goes up in the 1860s, designed by another neo-Gothic architect, Edward Barry. And so our station becomes called Charing Cross, and all over the country now we can go and visit these medieval-style, Gothic-style crosses influenced by 
Edward I's commemorative scheme. As a, as a final artistic suggestion, uh, perhaps the most fun thing you can do is probably go down to the tube station at Charing Cross, where in, I think it was 1979, the London artist David Gentleman redesigned the platform at Charing Cross, and he created this extraordinary 100-metre-long artwork, this sort of medieval-style woodcut cartoon where you can follow the story of the building of the original Charing Cross in the 1290s (laughs) as David Gentleman imagined it in the 1970s. It's a fantastic 100-metre-long work of art to go and explore if you're ever in Trafalgar Square. Of course, the whole Gothic public design aspect to it really is inspired by the crosses. So you have on a memorial level, the Albert Memorial. How could that exist without the Eleanor Crosses? And then you have all the sort of Gothic styled water fountains, which are modelled on things which are very like the Eleanor Crosses. So it it creates a whole idiom for us. You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. Next week, we're meeting fine art conservator Rachel Turnbull to discover what goes into restoring a painting and what you can do to look after yours. Try not to hang your painting where direct sunlight can fall on it because then you won't get any fading or changes to the colour of the painting. Thanks for listening. See you next time.